Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 220, Spies, Plans, and a Party. Last time, as Churchill and company prepared for Operation Ironclad, President Roosevelt prepared a message for the French people supporting Churchill's actions. It was hoped that it would be enough to stir doubt in the heart of the French. From doubt springs inaction, and that's what the Allies needed when they landed on Madagascar, inaction from the enemy. And yet, the president almost messed up the whole thing. His message sent out on April 29, 1942 said, in part, the United Nations will take measures, if necessary, to prevent the use of French territory in any part of the world for military purposes by Axis powers. The good people of France will readily understand that such action is essential for the United Nations to prevent assistance to the armies and navies or air force of Germany, Italy, and Japan. Yet, since Madagascar had been in the news for the last few weeks, what other takeaway was there for the French and Vichy officials? But the Admiralty did have one ace up their sleeve, a man on the inside. His name was Percy Mayer, and he was the Ford Motors company man on the island. And back in November 1940, Mayer contacted the UK High Commissioner in South Africa to say, I would like to help you, if at all possible. And he was in the perfect position to do that. Not only did he work on the island and know all the right people, he had been born on Mauritius, eventually becoming a naturalized French citizen. He told the South Africans to tell London about the things going on on Madagascar that he had just told them, and that he would work to turn the people away from Vichy. It was a godsend to the British, who had suffered much so far in the war. This offer was dutifully sent to London, and in January 1941, the Special Operations Executive, or SOE, said they would direct Mayer and his covert work. Mayer's immediate handler would be Lieutenant Wedlake. Wedlake and Mayer met in Cape Town in early March 1941, and there, Mayer was given a wireless radio set to contact the SOE. Mayer was to get to work in influencing Madagascar and Reunion, a small island off Madagascar's east coast, towards the Free French and away from Vichy. The SOE recommended bribery or murder for the Governor-General. Mayer said, let's try to be more subtle. So he reached out to his friend, one Captain Merton, who just happened to be in charge of the French fleet at Madagascar. A bribe of young ladies was put before the captain, as that was known to be his weakness, but Merton had been at Mayer's El Kabir when it was attacked by the British. Merton angrily said no, However, he did not turn in his friend Percy. Curious. But Mayer, or rather his wife, did better the second time around. Bertha, Mayer's wife, radioed Cape Town that French ships were leaving the island. This was in October of 1941. The British Royal Navy responded accordingly, and soon those vessels now belonged to the Allies. It was things like this that the SOE were happy that Mayer and his wife could do, but when the Japanese entered the war, London told the SOE to do more in the region. So the East Africa mission was set up to be run by Lieutenant Colonel John Todd. Both Todd and Mayer were expected to expand their list of contacts. 
And soon Mayer had at least 60 people talking to him from all walks of life. And as more of these contacts were people of means, Mayer had his finger on the pulse of the island. On April 16, 1942, John Todd and Mayer flew to Durban, South Africa, to meet with Admiral Seifert and General Festing to discuss how the Madagascar in East African missions could help with Operation Ironclad. Soon after this meeting, a schooner brought to Mayer, who was back on the island, guns, ammunition, code books, and four more wireless sets. This fifth column activity of his would be called Operation Frontin 2. And if Mayer wasn't impressed with the seriousness of this by the items he had just received, then all was made clear when he received a note of how his people could help the invasion by having a searchlight at the right place on the beach for the incoming ships, providing guides for the demolition parties to cut telephone lines between the coastal batteries and the Diego Suarez headquarters, and things like that. And yet, Mayer almost outdid them all when he told his superiors that during the night of the invasion, he would host a party and invite Mariton, the Vichy fleet commander, and the military commander, Colonel Clarabou, and spike their drinks with knockout drops. Mayer was really warming up to this. Next, he spent a few weeks around Diego Suarez Bay, where the Vichy French trusted him so much that they took him on a tour of the defensive positions, as well as the airfield that was south of the capital. Soon, Mayer was sending detailed reports of what the invasion force would have to face. Seifert and Sturgis would end up tweaking their plans based on Mayer's information. Everything was falling into place, and so on May 1, 1942, Operation Ironclad was given its final confirmation, and the crews of the various ships were told of their true destination. And, as Mayer had also gotten them the safe route through Collier Bay, the bay just to the west of Diego Suarez Bay, it was heavily mined, it was time to get this going. The convoy left Durban on April 25, 1942, consisting of six motor transport ships, two tankers, and the tank landing ship, escorted by the heavy cruiser Devonshire and two destroyers. They were to sail on as if they were heading to the Far East. Meanwhile, a second convoy would leave Durban three days later, April 28th, and was made up of troop transports, the assault ships, Illustrious, Hermione, and Romilies, and six destroyers, and the carrier Indomitable would join them on May 3rd. And on the day the first convoy left Durban, Churchill, he knew he needed a win. So as Ironclad was still in the as-yet-untested phase, his emotions ran high, as was their want. The Prime Minister was practically willing a victory after so much misery and failure in the Far East. However, the island the invaders were heading for was far from being a paradise. La Grande Ile, as the French called it, was over 900 miles long and 350 miles wide, especially when you throw in the two small islands near it, Mayotte and Comoros. Sadly, the island itself is mostly malarial swamps, mountains, deep ravines, and dense jungles. Much like the Bataan Peninsula, getting around there meant using only the roads, which were poorly maintained, and a few rail lines. Again, there were few. And, of course, there was the heat and humidity. 
the summer, averages about 30 degrees Celsius, or 86 degrees Fahrenheit, and most of its heavy rains come between December and April, which is why Ironclad was scheduled for after that. And at the time the British ships were closing in, the island had a population of 3.5 million, whereas 25,000 of those were French, or fully assimilated into French culture. The most northern tip of Madagascar, the area that we're concerned with, is called the Andrakaka Peninsula. On the east side of the narrow strip of land that connects the peninsula to the main island is Diego Suarez Bay. To the west of that land strip is Courier Bay. Sadly for the Allies, Diego Suarez Bay had a single narrow opening surrounded by almost two complete rings of land. And not unlike the Grand Harbor of Malta, which had three fingers sticking into it, Diego Suarez Bay had three fingers jutting up from the south. And at the tip of the center finger is the main town and naval base. Important to the approaching invaders, Estarang, the capital city, which held the naval base again at the end of the middle finger, had a population of 30,000 people. So there would be civilians around, whenever and however the fighting started. Further, not that it's guaranteed that the British knew this, but many of the cannon around the vital port city had been removed and taken to France during the Great War. Afterward, the port was rearmed. Still, some of those old guns were currently in place in the bay. But Dakar, de Gaulle's attack on Vichy French territory in West Africa, had alerted. Madagascar. The weeks and months after Dakar was attacked, the fortifications and guns around Diego Suarez Bay were beefed up. And when the South Africans started sending reconnaissance flights over the area, Vichy brought in more men from Senegal. Now, there were at least 3,000 troops around the port city itself. This, combined with the 4,000 French naval personnel in the harbor, would make it a tough nut to crack. Yet there was one more improvement that gave the Allies pause, the improved and increased air defenses of the area. When Vichy came into being, a report was written up about the ways that Diego Suarez could be better protected. All were ignored except the addition of more planes. So by the time the invasion was launched, the defenders had in the area more than 50-odd biplanes. But now... There was a squadron of modern Moraine Solnier MS-406 fighters. The squadron, called Escadrille 565, was based at the nearby Arachart Airport. And this squadron had, depending on how many planes were operational at any one time, between 18 and 20 aircraft. The MS-406 fighter was a respectable enough plane, which first came out in 1939. Yet, even for its newness, it was slower and outperformed by the Messerschmitt BF-109E. Hence, if it came up against any Spitfires, it would have a hard time. The same would be said if it went up against a hurricane, but for different reasons. Besides the fighters of Escadrille 565, there was a second, newly formed squadron of seven Potez 63-11 twin-engine bombers stationed at the capital. They were labeled Escadrille 555, but soon all of these planes were just put together in a group called Groupe Ariane Mixte, 
and scattered around the capital. Admiral Darlan had promised Governor Annette more planes and more men, but the convoys had left Durban before they could arrive. And another lucky break for the Allies was that Governor Annette could call on 30,000 men, but they were scattered all over the island. And truth be told, when they did respond to the alert, not all of them would have weapons in their hands. Catch as catch can, it would seem. As for how to approach Diego Suarez Bay, Vichy had already decided that for the Allies, or rather Vichy's guns had. To the east of the bay, at its entrance, again rather narrow, was a battery of four 320mm guns, along with three other batteries, but with smaller guns. And if the guns couldn't get the job done, well, at the beginning of any attack, the French had a mining barge ready to go, which could put a line of mines across the harbor's entrance in very little time. As for the Arangia Peninsula, the right finger of the three fingers sticking into the bay, that made up the bottom half of the harbor's entrance. There sat a battery of two 80mm guns, protected by a Foreign Legion-style fort called Mamelon Vet. In short, this was a perfect harbor, but it had one narrow entrance, and around it were seven coastal batteries with 20 large guns. To be sure, Courier Bay to the west or left of Diego Suarez Bay had its own protection, namely two lines of mines that had to be crossed. But as we have seen, Mare had already gotten their locations from the local administrators, and these he passed on to Admiral Seifert. But there were, of course, things the British did not know about like the Arichart Airfield, about 3 miles or 4.8 kilometers due south of the Middle Finger that housed the capital city. It had, for its protection, two mobile batteries of 75mm and 65mm field guns and an AA battery. And there was more, as Vichy had their own naval assets around the island. Within the bay, as the Allies approached, was the sloop Du Castru and the Bougainville, an auxiliary cruiser, which was an armed merchant ship with three 135mm guns and a sub, Beyuzia, which had done good service at the Battle of Dakar by damaging the battleship Resolution. Vichy had three other subs and another sloop, but they were out on patrol. Vichy was determined not to be caught unawares by the sneaky British a second time. But just to make the attack a bit more complicated, at least in international terms, also at anchor in the bay were two Greek ships, two Italian ships, and a German freighter, currently under repairs. And Mayer had told the Allies that plenty of ammunition had recently been shipped in. The only remaining question was, how hard would the troops fight for the bay? As this could not be known, the invading troops were told to expect maximum resistance, which meant on their part, maximum effort, i.e. go in guns blazing, ask questions later. And then Churchill had another idea, with his wife Clementine's words still ringing in his ears. Perhaps the troops would want to give up, but they couldn't as their officers would order resistance. So the Prime Minister's idea was to start fighting and then halfway through it, send up a white flag. 
but not to surrender, but to ask the enemy if they wanted to surrender and to give them the most tempting terms for capitulation. But the 67-year-old prime minister should have remembered from his younger days that once fighting is joined and the blood is up, it's hard to stop this brutal process because everyone is afraid to be the first one to put down their weapon. Fortunately, the men in uniforms around Churchill said no to this. Again, as the entrance to Diego Suarez Bay was heavily guarded, it was decided to land troops to the west of the bay by going through Courier Bay. There, they would land several groups of men, and they would join up and head east to go to the capital. But the men would be expected to quickly cover 20 miles in rough terrain and position themselves just to the southwest of Asterain, the capital city. And they would know when to move out as Seifert had arranged a diversion. Just before the infantry rushed the capital peninsula, the cruiser Hermione would start a bombardment to the southeast of the bay's entrance. Meanwhile, dummy paratroopers would be dropped again to the east of the bay to get all eyes pointed that way, when in reality the threat would be coming from the southwest. By now, all involved had been informed where they were to land, where to go, what to take, and if necessary, to be ready to march south to take the two other major cities below the capital. This was to be quick, this was to be overwhelming. No delays, no stalling. Diego Suarez was to fall and fall fast, before Vichy could respond with their more numerous troops. The Allied infantry would be broken into six groups that would land at six different locations. And being six groups, hopefully, the enemy would not be able to respond properly and stop all of them. The British had painfully picked up this lesson from the Japanese. Of course, the downside was the ability to communicate and direct all six teams. Some groups would advance, while smaller teams would take out the large guns near the beaches, but not to destroy them. Seifert knew he would need those up and running to respond to the, and you can take your pick here, the Germans, Vichy, or Japanese, when they came calling. The men of the 29th Brigade would make the main attack, with the 17th Brigade bringing up the rear, and together they would charge at the capital city, at Serene. When the capital was taken, the 17th Brigade, hopefully more rested than the 29th, as they, the 29th, would have to fight their way there, would spread out and take the remaining resistors, or the positions. And only then would Seifert's ships sail into Diego Suarez Bay, unopposed. Word to proceed with the operation came on May 1st, but that meant Seifert and Sturgis had only three days to sort out the men and landing craft, to test their weapons, and finally to make sure that each platoon, through models, understood what they were to see and to be up against when they came ashore. It was all nice and neat, the way plans always are, on paper. But right away, changes were being made. Again, once Anserain was captured, the Vichy guns to the east of the bay on the Arangia Peninsula were to be silenced. But as for attacking and taking the larger cities to the south, that was cancelled, as the 13th and 17th Brigades were to be sent on to India. 
There, the situation was only getting worse, and they needed all the men they could get. But the first troops to put boots on the sand would be a new feature for the Allies. Specially trained naval personnel would go ashore first and take control of the beaches that were about to be used by the attacking force. Step one, they were to kill or capture anyone within sight and then keep the area clear. After the regular infantry did land, these special forces would switch gears and they would make sure that the landing craft were looked after, that ammunition was flowing in constantly, and that wounded were flowing out constantly back to the larger ships. And finally, if stiff resistance was met, these forces would help with the fight. Though there was much that Seifert and Sturges did not know of when it came to how they would be received, they would get a good indication when these naval units landed. If all went well for them, things should proceed acceptably. If not, well, that's when everyone's training had better kick in. Or else this could end up being a shorter incursion than Dunkirk.